0: This time on Sonic Earth Expeditions, ear training, not just in the music room, but also in the concert halls of nature. Hello, fellow listeners, and welcome. I'm your host, Mary Beth Toole. There are different kinds of ear training. There's the kind that's taught in the formal study of music. In those ear training classes, students learn how to identify musical intervals and scales, among other things. There's also ear training in the study of nature. For example, learning to distinguish the different songs of birds. My guest is Lisa Rainsong, a composer, a naturalist, and an educator on the faculty of the Cleveland Institute of Music, and she teaches both kinds of ear training. In this, she's a sonic pioneer who brings an intentionality and an authenticity to her approach to sound. If I may, I wanted to ask you about your last name because it's so poetic and beautiful and it describes so perfectly who you are and what you do that I wondered if it was a name that you chose?
1: It was, in fact, a name that I chose so many years ago that it's been my name for more decades than I have not had that name. And it wasn't like a conscious choice, like, I am gonna make it be this. I just thought, I want my own name for my own personal reasons. I want my own last name. And that's eventually what came to me. I couldn't force it. When I tried to force it, It was just too artificial.
0: You're a musician and a composer and you teach at Cleveland. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your musical background?
1: My musical background is um, I didn't actually start on an academic path until I was in my probably later 30s because I was very much a blue-collar worker. And I had no idea that someone like me could even go to college. However, fortunately for me, I had years of piano lessons when I was younger. So I had a music background. I knew a little bit of the basics of music theory. I'd always done singing. I played in clubs when I wasn't mopping floors or running a punch press. I was singing in bars and restaurants and you know, just doing a piano bar kind of thing. And then when I learned that people like me could actually get things like student loans. Mm. Mind you, I am still paying those off, but soon I'll be done. Wow. (laughs) Well, that was three degrees. So I then went to Cleveland State University and did my undergrad and my masters. And I majored in composition because I would always write music. And this was a way to get training at that. And then later I went on and did my doctorate at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And in addition, I always did um, kind of TA-type stuff where I was teaching ear training and things like that. And being an older student, I was not intimidated by any of this. I was used to playing to drunks at a piano bar. I was not intimidated by students who were showing up at 8 or 8.30 in the morning. It's like, oh, I could do this. Oh, that's awesome. And so one thing led to another, and here I am.
0: And, and what is your role at the Cleveland Institute of Music? What do you do there? I'm
1: a music theory professor. Mm -hmm. So I do classroom teaching. I teach all the skills-based music theory curricula, and I also am the coordinator of the doctoral program. Wow. So you teach the
0: ear training and sight singing. I found it um, challenging, for sure.
1: A lot of people do, and one of the things that I say is that I want to try to minimize any theory trauma. And so i really do my best to be reassuring and i just think through ways to make it more accessible mm, mm. and what kind of music do you compose well as far as when i was doing my degree programs i did a lot of things for voice as a singer so it would be things for solo voice with either piano accompaniment harp accompaniment, or maybe a small ensemble. That's always very fun to do. I work with small subsets of of, uh, singers, and I also did considerable choral writing as well. And I've done instrumental writing, certainly. Mm. I've done plenty of that, but vocal music and voice with wind instruments in particular was particularly of interest to me. And
0: you're also a naturalist, which is so interesting to me. How did you get your start in recording the sounds of nature?
1: There's two steps to that answer. The first is I knew I wanted to do something with birdsong and teaching or whatever. And I was doing a walk in the neighborhood one afternoon. And I heard a titmouse singing, tufted titmouse. And I thought, I could teach people this. teach your training why could i not teach people bird song identification and break it down like i do for my students so that it's less scary for them because usually people say i can't i just can't identify what i hear the other part to your question is about recording i knew i wanted to do it i didn't know exactly how to start but the cleveland museum of natural history had a program on birdsong and Donald Krudzma, he was the author that they invited to attend. And what he did on the next day is he did a recording demonstration at Shaker Lakes Nature Center, out on the boardwalk into the marsh. And he had this equipment and I thought, I could do this, I totally could do this. I just didn't know where to start. But in one of his books, he recommended some basic starter stuff. And so I called one of the companies of the book and I said, I'd like to do this. I got my basic recording gear. It's what I pretty much use in the field even now and taught myself. You taught
0: yourself. Wow. Mm-hmm. And there's this amazing picture of you in the marshes <laughs> on the Autobahn Society's webpage. Uh, which is so cool. You're there with all your gear and your headphones, and it's really neat. Going back to the ear training and sight singing, do you incorporate birdsong into those classes, like the intervals or something?
1: I have on occasion. It's really not what I'm supposed to be doing, but, you know, composers tend to push it a little bit. There was one fall, actually it was before the pandemic, where I brought in singing insects. I would bring in cricket of the week we had. So I would either feature one up on a screen or I'd actually bring one in live so the students could listen and like, how would you identify this? And for bird song, I have on occasion taken my students out to listen to birds in University Circle. And in fact, they found an unusual species one spring.
0: Oh, my God. So
1: that was pretty great. And I promise that while we're doing this remote learning, that at least one class this coming spring, we're going to do it from the backyard. Oh, because these are, mu- these are music students. They can identify this stuff. Even in a classroom, if we hear... I'll say, who's here? The Cardinal! (laughs) Because they know that's the Cardinal's call Mm. note. Wow,
0: wow. Do you consider the sounds uh, that you hear in nature, like the bird song, like the amphibians, insects, do you consider that music?
1: It's not music in the sense that we think of it as music. For them, it's all about one thing. It's all about mine. This is my territory. I am advertising for my female. I want to pass on my DNA. And any of you other guys, no, just no. So it's all about that, everything that they're doing out there, except for the call notes, which are the contact notes that birds will use to keep in touch with each other. But all those beautiful songs we hear, it's not songs for them, it's songs for me. And sometimes I organize it in my brain as if it were an ensemble. Mm. But for them, they don't care about anybody else. They only care about the male on the next cattail.
0: When I listen in nature, and when, in particular when I was listening to some of your, the recordings that you sent, it is like this whole ensemble. How do you go about learning the different voices when there's everything going on, it's not like they take turns soloing like they do in jazz, you know, (laughs) they're all going at the same time. So how do you teach yourself to distinguish between the
1: voices? The way that I advise people to start and what I do in a slightly more advanced level is to start when you have the very first singers, before there's too many, because we can't sort all that out. It's like listening to an orchestral work and then trying to find the oboe in the whole texture when you have T Orchestra. So, if people can learn just a few at a time and learn what each one of those birds, for example, really does, because often they have more than one song, learn that species well. Then add a couple more and don't try to do them all at once. Don't try to learn all your bird song during spring migration because you were doomed.
0: Are there well that's an interesting point. The the clips that you sent me, were they all recorded in summer and were some at daytime, some at night, or how where did you go and what times of year and times of day did you do these recordings?
1: Everything was done regionally. So here in Northeast Ohio, and a couple that I sent to you because I just thought they were glorious, were big ensembles. So on the Lake Erie shore, this is the south shore of Lake Erie right here, birds will pile up in May waiting to get across to Canada, waiting for a south wind, and then it's wonderful. There's so many things singing at once. And if it's not overwhelming, it's possible to pick them out. And one of my tracks has, enough distance between them that you can actually hear individual singers. And the other is the overwhelming mass of just joyousness. Mm. Joyousness on my part, not on their part. They're urgent.
0: How about day and night? Were some recorded in the daytime, some at
1: night? Birds are best recorded in the day, in the morning. I'm not a morning person, so I have to really make a point of it. I teach early morning classes, so... I'm used to it. Nighttime is my favorite time and that's where the amphibians are most likely to be singing and that's absolutely where the singing insects are most likely to be singing. And the reason for that is that crickets and katydids are prey for so many different things, especially birds. Why come up on top of your cattail, for example, and advertise your presence when somebody's going to just swoop down and grab you and carry you back to a nest box? It's not a good plan.
0: You know, I, I never really thought until the recordings that you sent me about how much I love the sounds of amphibians. In the pickerel frog clip, are the frog mm-hmm. sounds the low tones that sound like snoring?
1: That's the pickerel frogs and then, if I recall correctly, there's spring peepers all around them.
0: Okay, so that's the uh, the high pitch.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, yay! (laughs) See, and and exactly, that's the one that people could pick out, because they're really different. Where they'll have more trouble is comparing a pickerel frog and a leopard frog, because they sound almost identical, Mm. unless you've really practiced.
0: How much training did it take you to learn all these different creatures?
1: I just did it over time. I just basically used the same approach that I would use to learn anything musical what's similar, what's different. I would listen for pitch. I would listen for rhythm because especially with Crickets and Katie Dids, the identifying characteristic for their songs is often the rhythmic patterns. Unlike a tufted titmouse who might sing, Da-da-ba-da-ba-da. Da-da-ba-da-ba-da. there's two different pitches there. Whereas a snowy tree cricket is gonna go, He's going to have a steady rhythmic pattern that helps you identify his sound, but he can't do two alternate pitches like that. Mm. That yeah, that snowy tree cricket
0: sounds just like a metronome to me. Not only mm-hmm. in the the uh, preciseness of the rhythm, but the the pitch too. It just sounds like one of mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. metronomes. Beautiful.
1: Yes, and you can actually tell the temperature by the number of wig strokes per second, or I should say. What we hear is the chirps per second. What is making the sound? The sound is being made. Now, I'm going to have to demonstrate for you personally. (laughs) Imagine that you have two wings like this and one has a file on it and the other has a scraper and those two parts rub against each other like that. That makes the sound. That's their instrument so people think that they're rubbing a leg against a wing or something but actually it's at the base of each wing one has a file one has a scraper and that's their instrument and what we hear is a chirp might actually be several wing strokes together so fast and the ones that sing a trill they are the ones that just do continuous wing strokes like that and we can often identify them by how many wing strokes per second. So 40 per second or 60 per second. Can you even imagine doing anything 40 times in a second?
0: Yeah. Oh my God, that's insane. <laughs> wow. So you could tell if it's in colder weather
1: or warmer weather?
0: Mm-hmm. That is fascinating.
1: There's two ways. Two ways you can tell how many wing strokes per second because the number of those pulses will decrease as they get colder and also the pitch goes down. So one might start dum up here and then ultimately wind up more like dum dum. It's not because they're changing their notes. They just can't move as fast. Mm. Wow. Fascinating.
0: thinking about music as a composer, do you incorporate any of these sounds from nature into your into your work? Because I have to say, in, in Grand River Terrace, for example, it sounds like melodies from birdsong. Do you pull that kind of inspiration into your compositions?
1: I do, and I'm not really literal about it so much as it's something that's suggested. In Grand River Terrace, the opening motives are my attempt to show in sound what an endangered little white butterfly's flight looks like because it's, it's just kind of bouncy like that. And they are low to the ground. They are quite endangered. And what I wanted to show is the Cleveland Museum of Natural History's Grand River Terraces in different seasons. Some of the things that one might see And maybe hear, but maybe just see. So how do I take an image, a visual image, and create the sound? So I went for the movement of the butterfly, how they fly. And then there was actually a hooded warbler. Hooded warblers have two songs. I've heard them called type A and type B. I don't know if that's formal or not. I took the type B song that I was hearing, and I took the contours and phrasing. So I didn't try to imitate the pitches literally, because You know, it's a composition. There's no need to do that. Mm. Although Messiaen might have done something. Sure. Well, I think he did both. I think he would have done the representation of it, and sometimes it's pretty precise. So I just wanted to capture the overall contour of the butterfly flight in the bird song. And the purpose, you had a purpose with this piece? I just wanted to document it. So... Basically as an inspiration for my writing, I did a four movement work and it was for this wonderful place. They are conserving, I think they might have 10,000 acres of land they've conserved by now. I'd have to check on that, but they're protecting the best of the best habitats in Northeast Ohio from development and they preserve them. And I just wanted to show that in music. Wow.
0: Well, it it does. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece, and I really love it, and I hear the nature in it. And that leads me to another question, and that is, why is it important to document with your recordings and with your compositions insects and birds and other sounds of nature?
1: My goal, in addition to the fact that it's just wonderful and I love it, My goal is the more people understand what they hear, recognize what they hear, start looking forward to what they hear, the more they're going to protect the habitat where that happens. Because these creatures are absolutely dependent on their particular concert stages. And so I tell people for the music to continue, we can't poison the insects, for example, and we can't bulldoze the concert halls. With the birds, and for that matter amphibians they need insects to eat so we can't destroy their food source and insecticides certainly hurt the birds as well and certainly any that affect that get to the amphibians will affect them as well so all that stuff that's my that's my plan I put that at the end of almost every class that I do and I don't do a big sermon about it or anything mm-hmm. I don't think I have to I just I know that if people are actually listening, they get engaged quite rapidly and they want to know more. And then they look forward to the cycles of nature and what they're going to hear, what they're going to hear in February. What's going to be the first bird that they hear, even when there's snow on the ground? Will it be the house finch this year or will it be the cardinal?
0: Mm. Wow. It's so wonderful that you're in such a place with that has such richness of... Of sound, I mean, here as a city dweller, I sometimes long for the variety that everything here, you know, you have that underlying traffic noise that's just that low hum that kind of blocks the sound a lot of sound. So I can't wait till we can travel and I can actually go to places where I can hear things. It's going to be amazing.:
1: Could I add one thing to that? Yes: Please. Um, Human noise is such a huge problem everywhere I go. It's really difficult to find quiet, and as you can imagine, when you're trying to record any motorcycle parade that goes down a road that runs along the river, that just destroys everything. And it makes it very difficult for birds and insects to communicate with each other. They don't need to talk to us, but they have to talk to each other. And human noise, I live in Cleveland, I am very fortunate that we have good park systems here and in the surrounding counties that I can get to, so I can get to natural places that are taken care of, but the noise is the big factor.
0: In Do Not Sorrow with Robin, what were your influences
1: in that piece? That piece was for soprano and flute, and one of the things musically that really interests me is interweaving the soprano voice with flute. Mm. And I think it was just to capture the text. And the sign of hope. For me, robins have always been a sign of hope. They're such common birds. doesn't matter. Even when I was a child, I would look to robins during the darkest time to be the sign of hope because it meant that dawn was coming before we could even see it, since they can tell changes in light before we can perceive this. So robins have always been a sign of hope for me.
0: Oh, I love that. That's really beautiful. Wow, I'm just going to sit with that for a second because that's so, so beautiful. Would you say, is it fair to say that um nature influences your music and your music influences your approach to listening
1: in nature. Absolutely yes. I hadn't thought about it quite like that, but that's absolutely true. It's like you have this feedback loop going. Yes, a very, a very lovely one. In a good mm-hmm. way. In a good way. Yeah, <laughs> we say feedback as musicians, and it's like, oh,
0: mm-hmm, no. mm-hmm. <laughs> but I meant it in the positive.
1: Yes, because I listen like a musician would listen. Mm-hmm.
0: And how, how is that? How can, this is something I'm asking all the experts that I interview for this podcast. How can people become better listeners? Do you have any tips for listening?
1: let's see. First, be quiet. (laughs) I am serious. Have have you ever been on a nature hike where everybody's talking? Yes. Like, see, (laughs) right there. And try to focus first on one thing at a time and then listen to how that interacts with the other things around it. Like, oh, okay, I'm hearing this bird. And I'm watching it so I can tell, I can even see, this is a Baltimore Oriole. Who else is singing around it? Where is it singing? Because that's part of it too. They don't all sing from the same places and they don't all sing at the same time of year. So when listening, I listen for what their particular stage is. Are they up high in a tree? Are they down in a shrub? Are they a grassland bird? So I'm listening also for location, and then I'm listening for who else sings in their ensemble. So I start with the individual, but pretty quickly, at least in my process, these days I go to what's the stage, what's the ensemble. Mm -hmm.
0: Are there some bird songs that are super
1: easy to pick out? I think for a lot of people, especially more northern, the black-capped chickadees is going to be really easy to pick out. And when you get south of, well, from our area, really, by the time you get to a little north of Columbus, Ohio, we've got Carolina chickadees. Yes, we have two species. They change over in our state. So that's helpful. It's a simple song. It's gonna be one that's common. Tough to titmice, people will hear a lot, but each titmouse has so many different songs that that in itself is a whole project to learn the repertoire. Mm. I think robins. Robins are a good place to start.
0: Robins, robins. And what's the distinctive note of a robin?
1: It's the rhythm. Mm. Because the robin rhythm is like da da dum, mm. da da dum, 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 da It's da da da, da da da, da da da. Whereas the rose-breasted grosbeak, which sounds very similar, is going to be... (laughs) much busier song. (laughs) There's no distinct phrases or breaths Mm. as we would describe them. So with the the robin, when I compare scarlet tanager to robin and rose-breasted grosbeak to robin, or Red-Eyed Vireo to Robin. I'm gonna go with phrase length, and sometimes it's tone quality, but nobody has that same distinctive Robin rhythm. Hmm. So once people know that, and they have something with which to compare the other song, that makes it easier. Like, oh, the rose-breasted grosbeak, Roger Torrey Peterson described it as a, sounding like a Robin that had voice lessons, <laughs> which I always make fun of. It's like, voice lessons, what does that mean? And then I'll do a demonstration like what I just did here. It's like, oh, like it didn't have to breathe. So if I can illustrate that, then they're going to hear a much longer phrase. Mm. The Scarlet Tanager has shorter phrases, but it has a scratchier tone quality. So I'll pick out the musical elements and help people compare things that are similar that they might hear. And I always have people start with robins Mm. and chickadees, just the absolute... White-breasted nuthatch, things that they're going to hear that are simple, and then build slowly from there. Mm.
0: And I like the, the way you broke down the areas up in the tree
1: or down on the ground. And habitat. Habitat helps a lot, too, because different habitats have different ensembles. So, for example, you're you're not going to hear an eastern meadowlark or a bobolink in a forest. Okay. Those are grassland birds. They won't be there. Mm. And you probably are not gonna hear a wood thrush way out in the meadow or in a wetland. However, there's certain birds like song sparrows that are a little bit more versatile, but they're still not gonna be way back in the woods. So just knowing what habitat has whom. If I'm around a pond, I'm gonna listen for song sparrows, maybe a swamp sparrow, common yellow throat, yellow warbler. I pay attention to who I see where and who I hear where, and then that's how I start putting the ensembles together
0: and how about the insects?
1: Same thing same thing there's certain ones that are very much in the woods not nearly as many as out in more open areas but there's certain ones that are tree dwellers so I would specify if you are at the edge of a forest you're going to listen for common true katydids and greater angle wings for example and maybe oblong wing katydids and if there's pine trees, guess what, there'll be a pine tree cricket. But when I get way out in the meadow, those are not the species I would look for or listen for. I would listen for the tree crickets that, although they're called tree crickets, they should be called maybe plant crickets. Because, <laughs> because, because yeah. they're out, yeah, they're out in the goldenrod, they're out in the asters, and they will have a different set of songs, and they are not going to be in the woods. Mm edge habitat is, as with birds, it's that's always a really good place for for some overlap. Wetlands too, there's certain species that are very much wetland species. So I'll listen for the black-legged meadow Katie dids if I'm at a wetland edge. They're going to be in the cattails and the bulrushes.
0: This is amazing to me because I like to, I love the sound of insects and amphibians, but I record and I don't know what I'm recording. So for example, I, I, out in the Flatirons in Colorado. I have these beautiful. To me, it's all crickets. I don't know what kind mm-hmm. of crickets they are, or mm-hmm. katydids, or cicadas. I, don't, I have no idea, but it's a beautiful sound. It is. It is. Have you noticed over? You've been doing this for some time. Have you noticed changes in habitat? Have
1: have insects been
0: moving or anything?
1: Absolutely yes. I've been tracking species here in northern Ohio that did not used to be here and I've been watching and listening really listening even more than watching as they have moved farther north, farther north, farther north till they get to Lake Erie. Now they have to figure this out but every year I document the changes in range and I think it's because it is getting colder in many years probably a little later so they have longer to mature And our winters haven't been as harsh, I mean, sometimes we get some awful snow, but we haven't had so much bitter cold. But they are definitely adapting. And just this year, in one of the sites I was surveying, I found them in places I had not heard them before, Mm. a couple of the species. And for us, that would be handsome trigs, jumping bush crickets, round-tip cone heads. And I have a colleague in the Chicago area, Carl Strang, and he's been doing the same kind of documentation in that region, and we are finding the same kind of movement. Oh, interesting. With those same species, yes.
0: Interesting. And is this the work that you are doing
1: um, for the
0: Giaga Park District on climate research? Did I say it right? Giaga? You
1: did, yeah. you did. And how did you even get that? <laughs> <You told me>. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way. <laughs> So what I was doing there is, I wanted to compare different corners of the county. It's in Northeast Ohio's Snow Belt, which is the last place that some of these insects are taking on. West of Cleveland, they made it to the lake, no problem, because it's a little warmer. But the Snow Belt, because when cold air comes across Lake Erie and the waters are warm, they get a whole lot of snow so they get far more snow than any other part of the state and that's an area that some of these species that are moving it's like the last frontier for them in ohio so i've really been tracking them and what i wanted to do with the survey is check on three different corners of the county Mm -hmm. of this snow belt county and see if it was different in the southern part of the country from the northern part and then see who had arrived where and in what kinds of numbers I was also checking on habitat too to see how they were doing in the various habitats because this is also about management of the natural parts of the park. Mm. So it was a two-fold survey. It was great fun. I must add, it was also the best social distancing imaginable because I could be out there after hours in the dark by myself with all the singing insects. Oh, wow. wow. How does documenting these sounds aid in climate research I think I mean I I just started doing this because I was interested because I noticed it I think it's going to be just one piece of a puzzle as far as things that are moving north and I could be wrong but I may not be that it would probably be a lot easier to document crickets that I can walk through a meadow and hear and say okay we've got this 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 and this than trying to document some beetles they're not going to say anything and we have to catch them in a pitfall <laughs> trap or something like that it it does make it easier for me to get some information and I do see the, and hear the changes over time so I would wonder if that's not true for the other insects as well it's not my training so I can't go much beyond that mm. but I sure can document mm. right I, I would imagine that it would be extremely valuable
0: to these, this kind of research, to overlay that information with other information that they, they have. So I, I think it's incredible. We're almost at the end of the pandemic. What projects do you have going forward with your, your music and your nature recording?
1: The main thing I'm focusing on in in my personal life right now is really um, bird song, insect song, amphibian song, as opposed to Lisa's song. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really enjoy teaching and I love doing research, but I love teaching too because just bringing all this to people, it feels hopeful to me. So. I have been working on classes just recently, not looking forward, but just recently on bird song by habitat so that people can start listening in a particular habitat and know who would sing there. Mm. And when I first started doing any of this, I was doing individual birds, like this is so-and-so, then I expanded that to this is a tufted titmouse, and in this location right here, I have recorded them doing all these different songs, so you have to listen for variation in songs. And I was comparing different species, so like if this, then that. Then I did the habitat, now what I want to do is start helping people listen to small ensembles and break apart what they hear so that they can tell it's not just this particular bird, it's these four birds. For example, if it gets to be a big, massive migration course, there's no hope. I mean, somebody will get a good list from that, but for most people, they're just going to give up. And I don't want people to give up. It's it's too joyful and it's too rewarding for them when they can start hearing it. Even if they say, now I may not remember this next year, but I'll go back and review. They're engaged. They're engaged at that point. So that's my next project is to take little ensembles of birds that will be found together, but who have identifiable songs, break them apart and then put the ensemble back together so people can see, mixing my metaphors, see if they can hear who all was actually singing. I love this because it, it
0: doesn't happen in a vac- vacuum as we were talking earlier about. They don't solo one at a time. I think it's an incredible idea. Learning to listen to nature with Lisa Rainsong. Ah, It's a wonderful idea. Oh, thank you. I love it. Thank you to my guest, Lisa Rainsong, for sharing these incandescent recordings of nature and of her musical compositions. To find out more about her work, Her blog is listeninginnature.blogspot.com. She also has an online singing insect field guide. That's at listeningtoinsects.com. I'll put links in the podcast description. I'm Mary Beth Toole, and you've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. Until next time, thank you, and remember, better living through listening. Happy trails.